Kia ora and welcome to the Happy Revolution podcast. My name is Mika and I'm here with my co-host Rain. This week we chat with Emeritus Professor Dr Jonathan Boston. Jonathan is a lecturer here at Te Hiringa Waka, Victoria University in the School of Government and is an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. Jonathan is widely published on various topics including public management, social policy, welfare reform and climate change policies. Jonathan has had a long career in all manner of fields, both within academia and in the public sector. He had and continues to have wide-ranging involvement in public policy development in Aotearoa, New Zealand. In this episode, we chat about climate change policies and adaptation and where he finds hope in the climate crisis. We really loved this episode and we hope you did too. Can you tell us, Jonathan, a bit about your background and upbringing and how you got to where you are now? Yes. So briefly, I was born in the United Kingdom in 1957. I was born in Birmingham, which was right in the sort of Midlands. Uh, and I spent the first five years of my life living uh, with my family in, in Birmingham. My father was a general practitioner working in the so-called black country in a place called Black Heath, which was particularly badly polluted in those days. I had three much older sisters. I was a kind of afterthought. My mother had been a hospital nurse, but was a full-time mum when I was a child. And for a whole variety of reasons, my father decided to leave the United Kingdom and move to Australia. So when I was five and a half, we got on a boat and we went to live on a little island in the Bass Strait between the mainland of Australia and the island state of Tasmania. And we had a year on the island, which was an extraordinary sort of experience for a child. Uh, and then went to live on the mainland of Tasmania for about three years. Uh, and then, for a variety of reasons, we moved to New Zealand. And I've lived in New Zealand for the bulk of my life since then, though I spent various periods of time back in the United Kingdom, initially to do my doctorate, which I did at uh, Nuffield College in Oxford in the area of sort of public policy. It wasn't called that in those days. Uh, and I've lived briefly in Canada and in the United States. So essentially for New Zealand, uh, in terms of living in this country, I spent a good part of my latter childhood, my teenage years in particular in Christchurch, went to Canterbury University, then got a scholarship to, to Oxford and spent three years in the United Kingdom, subsequently came back and worked initially for the New Zealand Treasury as an investigating officer. I previously done some work for the Treasury when I was a master's student at Canterbury University and then went to work for the Institute for Governance. Well, it was actually with the Institute of Policy Studies in those days, now the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies. Then took a job at Canterbury University in political science for three years and then was invited to take a job at Victoria University where I've been ever since. So I've spent from 1988 until now as a member of the staff of, of Victoria University of Wellington in various different organisational arrangements, but predominantly in the last 20 years in what's been called the School of Government. So that's essentially a quick skim through, yeah. through, through my life. Yeah, so you've worked both in the public sector as a public servant and then also sort of outside that in various university spaces? Yes, so probably unlike many academics, I have been in and out of the academic sort of world, though almost always always with a toe in the world of academia. So uh, initially, as I said, I worked for Treasury, then as, as a research fellow at this university in the Institute of Policy Studies, then as a kind of lecturer, senior lecturer at Canterbury University, and then in various academic roles at this university. But while living in Wellington, I've also worked for the tertiary, well, I was appointed to the Tertiary Education Advisory Commission which was a part-time sort of role. I then was employed by the Tertiary Education Commission as a consultant for about three or four years. And during that time, I was on the staff of the university, but just point two, so one, one day a week. And then later in my career, 2021, I was on secondment to the Ministry for the Environment half-time to work on a number of particular projects. And during the time I've been at the university, I've also undertaken work for quite a wide range of government departments and a range of crown entities. So, for example, I was the 
co-chair of an expert advisory group on solutions to child poverty for the then Children's Commissioner, Dr. Russell Wills, in 2012-2013. And I've served on various other sort of advisory bodies. Right now, I've just been appointed to an expert working group on climate change adaptation for the Ministry for the Environment. So I'll be doing that part-time for the next 10 months or so. So I've kind of been the person who's, well, by the grace of God, had a foot in a number of different camps, which is what I'd hoped for. I didn't want to just be a, if you like, pure academic. I, I wanted to be someone who could contribute to public life in various capacities and could be at that interface of the academic world and the policy world, the policymaking world. And so I've been very fortunate in all manner of ways to be at this particular university in the capital city, located for 20 years of my life, literally across the road from Parliament and across the road from the key government departments and other government agencies, and in a university with a strong focus on contributing to public policy and public life. You mentioned in there about being an advisor to the Ministry for the Environment in terms of like climate change adaptation. This is an area that you've done a like, fair amount of work in. When did that start? And what are some of the projects and things that you've been involved in over the course of your time working in that sort of sphere? So, look, just putting it in context, I, I'm a kind of a policy generalist rather than a specialist, and so I've worked on a whole variety of different issues during the course of my academic career. And that may be partly because I also get bored after a while working yeah. on particular topics. So initially, I worked on incomes policy, wage and price controls, and that kind of thing. I did my doctorate in that area. I subsequently worked on public sector reform, public sector management. I worked subsequently on constitutional reform, particularly electoral reform. So I was involved with the debates over the move to proportional representation and then undertaking research on the impact of that particular electoral reform on New Zealand's political system. I then got involved in debates over the funding of scientific research and, and tertiary education. And I spent probably a good 10 years of my life pr predominantly focused on some of those issues. And, and then for the last um, 18 years or so, I've been sort of oscillating between three areas, climate change, mitigation and adaptation on the one hand, child poverty and kind of welfare state issues, and the whole question of how do we protect long-term interests in a short-term world. And the issues of climate change and child poverty, although they're very different, are both the kinds of issues where this question of how do we protect long-term interests in a short-term world are highly relevant. Because both in the case of, of child poverty and climate change, you're essentially needing to invest early, upfront to produce better long-term outcomes, or in the case of climate change, reduce you know, the magnitude of the negative impacts. So just going back to your question more specifically about climate change. So I was interested in environmental issues from a very young age, like 13 or 14. I had a good friend at school who was a year behind me, but I always used to say to people he was light years ahead of me, <laughs> a person called Rod Donald. Uh, who subsequently became the co-leader of the Green Party. And Rod created a little organisation called Ecology Action at the school I was at in Christchurch. I was heavily involved in that, and for a good part of my teenage years, I was very heavily involved in environmental issues. And then for all sorts of reasons, which I don't need to bore you with, uh, my life took some different routes. And while I remained interested in, the, in environmental matters, I, I was preoccupied with other things. And then 2005, I was asked to speak at an event by the Anglican Church here in Wellington on the 2005 general election and what were the most important issues. And as I reflected on that question and then prepared some remarks to speak, I was very struck by the fact that climate change by then was undoubtedly one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue from the long from the long term point of view for humanity and the planet. But it was barely being talked about. So as I prepared my remarks, I thought I've really got to say something about climate change. As I was delivering my remarks, I became quite agitated <laughs> on this topic and publicly actually virtually shouted at the audience. <laughs> for which I felt slightly embarrassed at the end, 
but was comforted by someone in the audience who said, well, Jonathan, no, I think your remarks were prophetic, so don't be embarrassed. Mm. But remarkably, several things then happened which did really change the course of my life. Two, in no order of importance. The first was, by then I was Deputy Director of the Institute of Policy Studies, and the um, British High Commission approached me about organising a conference in March 2006 here in Wellington on climate change. And having sort of spoken passionately at this pre-election event uh, on climate change, I thought, well, you know, yes, I, I need to take up this challenge. And I'll say a bit more about that in just a moment. But then secondly, my friend Rod Donald died suddenly in bed one night, totally unexpectedly. I had been due to have lunch with him the following week uh, to catch up for a post-election discussion on a range of issues. And I was, you know, Rod wasn't one of my best friends, but he was, he was someone who I had a high respect for and didn't always agree with him on everything, but, you know, he was, he was a remarkable individual. And I was really quite affected by his, by his death. I thought, you know, here goes one of the really strong voices for environmental issues in New Zealand, co-leader of the Green Party. I, I felt I need to step up. And I wouldn't say take his place, but, but certainly do more in that policy space. And the opportunity that the British High Commission sort of gave me was, in the circumstances, quite remarkable. So the British government was, in late 2005, quite concerned that the New Zealand government would backtrack on climate change issues. And that was because, as a result of the 2005 general election, the New Zealand First Party was part of the government. Well, it was sort of part of the government and not part of the government. It was this very curious situation in which the leader of the New Zealand First Party was Minister of Foreign Affairs, but was not a member of the government somehow. Anyway, we won't worry about that. It was a very curious, unusual constitutional development. But the British government was quite concerned about this and felt that, given the delicate politics, uh, geopolitics of climate change, if New Zealand kind of went backwards, that would not be good. So it, it was keen that the issue of climate change be given ad adequate spotlight. <laughs> they said, could you, could you organise a conference? I said, yes. They said, how much money would you like? Well, I was a novice at organising conferences in those days. I said, mm, maybe $10,000. And they said, here's £20,000, which was then about $50,000. <laughs> I thought, oh, boy, wow. OK. All right. The conference in the end actually cost us about $450,000. Wow. It was a big conference. It was beyond anything I imagined, frankly. We had about 400 to 500 people attend. And the reason the British government was interested but they didn't tell me at the time, was that Tony Blair, the then Prime Minister, was coming to New Zealand in March 2006, and they wanted a platform for him to speak at. Well, there's a long story involved in all this, which I won't bore you with. Uh, in the end, he did speak at the conference, albeit with some, what would be called, little local difficulties with the New Zealand government over this matter. Uh, but he spoke with the former Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, as the chair, and... It was a great contribution from him. By then, he was already a controversial figure because of the British government's support for the war in Iraq, which was a tragedy in many respects. But um, on climate change, um, Tony Blair, as with many British prime ministers prior to that, Margaret Thatcher, Gordon Brown, subsequently, and so on, were concerned, deeply concerned about climate change and wanted to make, wanted to make a difference globally as well as nationally on that topic. So... From then on, really just, in some ways, night followed day. We couldn't have a big conference like this and then not do anything else, so we, uh, in consultation with the government and, and officials in a range of government departments, we, we set up a, a roundtable process which ran for, oh, at least 12 or 13 years subsequently, uh, in which essentially ministers, opposition spokespeople on climate change issues, senior officials other government officials, people from local government, people from the business community, particularly energy, transport, forestry and agriculture, uh, researchers, NGOs like Greenpeace or international NGOs like Oxfam, got together, well, four or five times a year to talk about the key issues in the area of 
of climate change policy, both mitigation and adaptation, that, that is both reducing emissions and adapting to the consequences of climate change, and both sort of the international issues as well as the domestic issues. And in that process then was a catalyst for various books and articles, for subsequent conferences. I must have run, you know, five or six subsequent symposiums and conferences on climate change over the following five or six years, and literally dozens and dozens of workshops, lectures, seminars, and so on. And the aim there basically was to provide a platform to build a consensus among, you know, the movers and shakers in New Zealand policy in this space, to build a consensus for action to reduce New Zealand's emissions to contribute to the international effort in that regard and, and to begin the process of, it, of preparing for the impacts of climate change, which are now much more readily apparent than they were, you know, 16, 17 years ago. And I suppose it'd be fair to say I don't regret doing any of that, but it didn't have the consequences that I'd hoped. In other words, we didn't make the progress that I'd hoped for. And one obvious reason for that was that come 2008, the government changed and... Uh, a centre-right government led by National was elected and essentially for the next nine years that government sought to do as little as it could possibly do <laughs> to address climate change because it saw it as essentially a, an issue that could only lose them votes. I think that's putting it very bluntly. So we went backwards uh, in many respects from a policy point of view and our emissions didn't go down. Uh, maybe they didn't go up dramatically during that period but they didn't go down in certainly not in gross terms, in net terms, they went up very significantly. So it, it, it was a disappointing period. And final point, really, in answering this question of yours and rather long answer would be that it became pretty clear to me probably seven to eight years ago that globally we were going to be faced with massive impacts from climate change, far worse than I had hoped would be the case, that those impacts would have profound consequences for humanity and that here in New Zealand we had the opportunity, if we were able to take it, to prepare ourselves for those impacts so that we could be better placed to cope and better placed to maintain some kind of democracy in the midst of what will be, without any question, some extraordinarily difficult and unprecedented events where I think the foundations of the democratic world will be severely shaken. So I've been working off and on for the last five or six years, particularly to think about how we can build institutional framework and a funding framework and a sort of wider policy framework to enable us to be able to adapt to the impacts of climate change and cope with those impacts as well as we possibly can. So that's led on now to this request that I serve as a member of um, this expert working group for the Ministry for the Environment on um, on climate change adaptation. I'm keen to just like on a quite general level, on or be as specific as you want with certain areas. What do you think are some key policies and key policy solutions that need to be implemented to mitigate emissions and adapt to climate change from where we are now? Hmm. Well, look, we start just with the big global picture. You know, we're currently at about 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial levels yeah. as the increase in global mean, mean surface temperatures. But that's the global mean. In terms of land surface temperatures, we're up around 1.7, 1.8 degrees, with the oceans around 0.7. And, of course, in the northern latitudes of the northern hemisphere and in the parts of Antarctica, nearest the equator, the temperature increase has been much more than one degree or even 1.8 degree, more like three to four degrees Celsius above pre-industrial. So we're there. We know that we have a climate system that's not linear. It's non-linear. So you, you won't get sort of gradual shifts. You'll get some gradual shifts and then abrupt shifts. The systems will flip. And that means you've got tipping points. Um, and we don't necessarily know where all those tipping points are. We also know that there are some very significant parts of the biosphere which, if, if they change dramatically, will have huge impacts on the climate system or big climate impacts. So one would be the loss of the Amazon rainforest, 
which the experts in the area say is getting perilously close. In other words, we've already lost 20-25% of the Amazon rainforest. If we lose much more, the concern is we'll lose pretty well the whole lot and it will turn to savanna and the Amazon are part of the lungs of the earth. They have, until recently at least, been absorbing uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, so it's a huge store of carbon. If that goes up in smoke, as it is increasingly doing, well, that contributes to more emissions, greater concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and and if it goes, it will it will shift climate systems right across the planet um, because everything's connected. The big ice sheets are also a huge worry. the The first issue is Greenland. You know what kind of is the tipping point beyond which you'll have irreversible melt of Greenland. Well, in the early days that I was involved in this in this subject area as a layperson, um, I might say not as a scientist, the scientists were saying, well, it's probably, you know, well over two degrees increase in mean surface temperature on the planet. Now, the view is that it, it could be even below two degrees that you'll get kind of irreversible melt. And then there's the problem of the West Antarctic ice sheet, which is essentially anchored to the ground, but some of it, a lot of it below sea level. So if the water warms underneath, it will melt, and then it's a question, what is the tipping point in which you get irreversible melt of the West Antarctic ice sheet? And those ice sheets are hugely important because of the amount of sea level rise tied up in them. If Greenland has an irreversible melt, at some point we end up with about six metres of sea level rise. West Antarctic ice sheet, I think, is around seven metres of sea level rise. And then you've got to add on, you know, the loss of glaciers across the planet along with thermal expansion of the ocean as the as the ocean warms and so on. So that means sea level rise becomes a really big, really, really big issue. So what do we need to do in terms of mitigation? Well, basically, we need to reduce global emissions as fast as possible. Ideally, to try and avoid much to, to avoid warming of much more than 1.5 degrees. So we're already at 1.1, we're heading towards 5, 1.5. Um, Stabilising at 1.5 may well be in, impossible now. But, but if, we were, if we were really, really concerned to do so, then the scientific evidence suggests that we would need to reduce global emissions by around 45 to 50% by 2030, based on 2010 levels. And, well, we're nowhere near doing that. To get to that point from where we are now in 2022, Global emissions would need to fall at around 8 to 9% per annum for the next eight years. It would mean that for the developed world, they'd need to fall by over 10% per annum. Well, how would you do that? If you were really serious, you would have to have, in effect, you'd have to put the global economy on a war footing to achieve those sorts of those sorts of reductions. Really interesting, just in that context, if I could just slightly backtrack, at the 2006 conference here in Wellington that I helped organise. One of the keynote speakers was Lord Ron Oxburgh, a very distinguished geologist who'd been Professor of Geology at Cambridge and former chair of the oil company called Shell, so one of the biggest companies in the world. And in the course of his remarks, his keynote address to Papa, he said two things which I thought were quite sort of shocking but were never reported, which really surprised me because there were lots of media uh, attending and covering the conference. He said that in his view, and this is in March 2006, so this is more than 16 years ago, that the issue of climate change was then so critical that we needed to put the global economy on a war footing to, re to reduce global emissions. 16 years ago. I thought, wow, that's radical. Yeah. That's radical. And the second thing he said was, we will see the movement of people on the planet, the like of which we have never seen in humanity's history. You know, tens if not hundreds of millions of people on the move because of the impacts of climate change. And I suppose we are beginning now to see those sorts of movements. You see in Pakistan, as we speak today, you know, 30 million plus people displaced or severely affected by, by the floods. That follows massive floods in Bangladesh, which displace millions of people, albeit temporarily, and then there's been big impacts from floods and other things in many other parts of the world. Huge droughts affecting millions, if not tens of millions, of people in parts of Africa, Madagascar, 
course, in China, uh, Europe and the United States. Yeah. So we would need, going back to the point where we are now, to get to 2030 and have a reasonable chance of avoiding more than, than 1.5 degrees of warming, we would need across the developed world to have uh, a dramatic reduction in emissions. What would that mean for New Zealand? Well, it would mean, among other things, we would basically have to ban very shortly the purchase of new vehicles that rely primarily on fossil fuels. So it would mean people not being able to buy vehicles unless they were probably plug-in hybrids or hybrids. It would mean moving to a much greater reliance on public transport, much greater reliance on active transport. It would mean some pretty significant efforts to reduce livestock numbers in New Zealand, massive reforestation um, on, on a scale hitherto unprecedented. Uh, it would mean making every effort to get to, you know, as close as we can to 100% renewable electricity and no doubt lots of other changes, changes that, that probably would be politically impossible for a government to, to implement. You know, at the moment, if you take land transport for the light vehicle fleet, I think the government's goal is to get to a third of vehicles in the, in the light vehicle fleet being electric by, is it 2033? Well, that's simply not nearly a- ambitious enough. And, and I should say here, we don't want to simply replace four million light vehicles mostly chewing through, you know, petrol or diesel with 4 million EVs because we really need to have more efficient ways of moving people around, which means relying much more heavily on public transport and um, active transport. Yeah, so very dramatic policy changes would be needed and would be needed globally, and we don't have that sort of regime in place globally or locally. So all the indications are that we are likely to well and truly exceed 1.5 degrees of warming and probably 2 degrees of warming. Being realistic at the moment where we sit without dramatic changes in policy uh, across many of the major emitters, so that's the United States, China, uh, Europe to an increasing extent, India, Brazil and so on, without, without really further dramatic changes in policy, um, we, we're heading for more than 2 degrees of warming. Which means... Um, ever bigger impacts on human systems, infrastructure, housing, agriculture, and so on, but also, of course, on all the other species on the planet. Yeah. In light of, of that, what did you think of the government's emissions reduction plan this year? A step in the right direction, but weak. Um, so <laughs> the good thing about the current policy framework in New Zealand is that we now have a requirement in legislation to get to zero CO2 emissions yep. by 2050, which is which is good as a, as a goal. And we've also moved, following the United Kingdom, in having multi-year emission budgets. And the budgets are meant to reduce in size, these are emission budgets, uh, over the next 28 years to get us to zero CO2 emissions, but not zero um, all emissions, because we'd still have some methane and nitrous oxide in the, in, in being produced, but certainly CO2 emissions. And so we have that framework in place, and that, unless it changes under a future government, means that governments are obliged to come up with policies that are consistent with those budgets. And, and if they don't, well, they can be held to account, publicly at least, potentially legally, but certainly publicly and politically. I suppose what I'd say is... I don't think the budgets that have been set, certainly the current budget and the next budget, are, are sufficiently ambitious. That's my own personal view. I, I think the Climate Change Commission could have been more ambitious than it was in advising the government, and the government's accepted as accepted as advice. But be that as it may, I don't think the government has been sufficiently ambitious in its policy measures to try and meet those budgets. And worse, uh, the main opposition parties, National and ACT, clearly want to undo many of the things that the government either is doing or is intending to do. So, for example, we have a fee-bate scheme for for vehicles which essentially penalises high-emission vehicles and subsidises low-emission vehicles. Well, the National Party says it wants to do away with this. Well, if they do away with it, they're removing one of the significant price signals that that encourages people to, 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 to buy low-emission vehicles. So... 
what are they going to put in its place? Well, it's not clear. They say they want to rely heavily on price-based mechanisms. Well, the fee-based scheme is a price-based mechanism. So does that mean they're going to rely more on the ETS? Well, if they're going to rely more on, on the ETS, that will drive up petrol prices, but that will be politically unpopular, as we know. So are they going to do that, despite its political unpopularity? Well, we'll, we'll see if, if, if they're elected, whether they're willing to do that. I suspect they won't. The previous national government wasn't. So... I'm not overly confident that the next national government or national led government will be. I'm genuinely sceptical. Uh, moreover, I'm sceptical not least because they hardly ever talk about climate change as an issue. Mm. Uh, the leader of the opposition at his first national party conference at which he was leader barely mentioned the topic, as I understand it, and chose to focus on an extremely minor topic, namely the fact that there are too many sort of older teenagers and people in their early 20s on benefits that are, from his point of view, abusing the benefit system. Well, there's only a few thousand of them, and the cost is minuscule, and the overall scheme of things is trivial relative to the big issues we face. Mm. So if the National Party is going to focus on the trivia rather than the really big stuff, that worries me. Yeah. Mm. Deeply. I'm also interested to know, we've talked a bit about, like, policy to reduce emissions what do you have any thoughts on on policies or measures that could be implemented or ways in which institutions could be restructured to help adapt to the effects of climate change when more serious effects mm. like sea level rise mm. and extreme weather events start really hitting us and mm. sort of massive shifts in population what are some things sure, that need to be implemented? Sure. So two or three things very quickly. The first is that New Zealand will be impacted significantly by climate change because we're a coastal country. We have the, I think it's the ninth longest coastline in the world, and a very substantial proportion of our population is coastal. We also have a significant proportion of the population living in river valleys um, on floodplains, you know, like, for example, Palmerston North. So uh, first thing is to remember... In terms of you know, storm events, sea level rise, New Zealand is, is going to be in the firing line. The second is that New Zealand will be profoundly affected by the impacts of climate change on the rest of the world. We're a trading nation. We live in an integrated, you know, globalised society on this planet. And so, you know, the big impacts that affect, whether it's China or the United States, Europe, whatever, will, will have their ripple effects in New Zealand, just as we've witnessed with the pandemic supply chain you know, issues in other jurisdictions have had their ripple effects here in New Zealand, not being able to get certain medicines, not being able to get certain types of you know, plasterboard for, for building purposes and so on. With, with climate change, we're going to be faced with some of the biggest cities in the world being highly vulnerable to climate change, and some of those big cities are major manufacturing centres. So just in our part of the world, you've got Jakarta, Mumbai, Calcutta, Dhaka, uh, Bangkok, Ho Chi Minh City, uh, Shanghai, and you could go on, Tokyo, all of which are coastal cities with a substantial proportion of their populations living only a few metres above sea level or even less than a metre above sea level, current sea level. So those cities stand to have to be, to be very severely impacted. And in some of those cities, are, you know, 30 million people. So, you know, you're talking about really big impacts. And those impacts will have ripple effects. So, second thing, regardless of what we can do here, we're going to be impacted by what happens elsewhere. And then I think the third thing is we need to think very carefully about the kinds of impacts we're going to suffer. And, and it's going to be multiple. So, clearly, sea level rise will have an impact. More intense rainstorms will have an impact, as we've witnessed just in the last year. You know, if you start listing off all the places that have had severe floods uh, in New Zealand, Northland, West Auckland, Gisborne, Napier, Nelson, uh, Nelson Marlborough, West Coast, Canterbury, Ashburton, Central Otago, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of insurance losses, and even more in terms of infrastructure damage, you know, you can't blame all these events solely on climate change, but climate change has a kind of um, magnifying impact. So it, it makes it more likely you're going to have worse storms and more intense rain and more prolonged rain, and it makes it more likely that, um, therefore, more damage will be done. And this will simply you know, 
this will escalate. We don't know necessarily how fast, and we don't know necessarily, you know, the magnitude of the impacts. But but over time, not every year, but certainly over time, the trend is going to be pretty obvious. And then there's the other impacts, um, more severe fires, where we've already witnessed some unprecedented fires in New Zealand. Port Hills above Christchurch, in Nelson twice, and, and uh, in other areas of the country. Uh, then you've got changing disease vectors. As you change your climate, diseases which previously couldn't flourish can flourish. Other diseases might not be able to flourish. Insects which previously couldn't exist uh, will flourish, will flourish, and so you'll get you'll get impacts on crops, on human beings as a result of those sorts of things. And then for New Zealand, uh, there's also, and this is one of the, going back to my second point about ripple effects from overseas, we're going to be seen as a, as a more attractive place to come and live um, because we're not going to be having the extreme temperatures, for example, that happen now in the United States and Europe, uh, China and so on. And so rich people who uh, are able to move uh, will probably increasingly look to New Zealand as a, as a safe haven. Coupled with that, we've got, you know, three or four Pacific islands, which are atoll states like Kiribati, uh, Tuvalu, Tokelau and Marshall Islands, which are very low-lying, which run the risk of being uninhabitable uh, at some point this century, possibly, in some cases, by 2050. So that then raises the question, where are these people going to go? And how many of these people will New Zealand be willing to take? So you've got that. And then when you come back to, say, something like sea level rise, well, we know the direction. We don't know, however, exactly how fast it's going to occur and what the magnitude will be. Um, but if you look at the sort of scenarios that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has put forward, then realistically we could have somewhere between half a metre and a metre of sea level rise by the end of the century and multimetre sea level rise within several hundred years. If we're unlucky, uh, it could be worse. It could be close to two metres by the end of the century and many, many metres further on in the future. The problem is that even half a metre of sea level rise will have significant impacts, partly because many of the stormwater systems in our cities are gravitationally based. <laughs> and if you raise the sea level, then you have a problem in a storm of the water not being able to exit the stormwater system because the sea's in the way. And that becomes a particular problem if you have more powerful storm surges and more intense rain fall events with more more water that needs to find its way to the sea. So here in Wellington, the central business district is, is, is vulnerable in the sense that our central business district is only a few metres above sea level and the stormwater system is essentially gravitational, so we're going to have, have to find some way of, of protecting the central business district and eventually moving the central business district, or at least parts of it. And that's going to be you know very, very expensive. I suppose the general point about you know, sea level rise is that the, the greater the magnitude, the more people we're going to have to move, other things being equal. And most people are not going to be pleased about moving. This is going to be very disruptive economically, socially, psychologically, and politically. It's going to be very expensive. Um, and I can see this being an area of enormous political conflict and confrontation. I mean, it will be unprecedented. Never in human history have we needed to move large numbers of people, mm. you know, out of harm's way. And not just once or twice, but systematically and continuously and in ever-increasing numbers over time. So how we do that and whether we can do that is, is going to be one of the big issues of the next generation, the next 20, 30 years. If we fail then the implications are very obvious. There will be even more damage. Westport will be flooded even more times, or the equivalent you know, towns and cities will be, will be inundated and flooded. There'll be more suffering, more losses, and the capacity of our institutions to cope will be sorely tested. I mean, you, you just hear the frustration of people already, you know, who have been displaced, <laughs> or who can't go back home, whose roads are blocked by slips and, and so on. And, and the angst that that generates uh, against the government, which is you know, understandable, but, well, you know, these events are just going to get worse. Um, yeah. 
with all of that in mind, of all of the different issues that we face and some potential solutions, how can we as individuals or as groups or as organisations or families or communities mm. engage with the government mm. and with policymakers and decision makers on these issues? What are some things we can do to make our voices heard, put pressure on mm. people who are holding those positions of power and can make some of those changes to be more ambitious and do some of that mm. work? Well, look, it's a very good question. I suppose... The short answer would be, with difficulty. <laughs> um, this is not an issue that is simple or straightforward or is easily resolved. It's an enduring challenge that will require, uh, if you like, the very best of humanity over the coming decades at all levels of society uh, across the whole globe. And sadly, unfortunately, it's an issue that often brings out the worst in humanity rather than the best. So with difficulty, that would be my first answer. We, we need to be absolutely realistic about the magnitude and nature and, and cost of the challenge. Second point would be, uh, and this is more sort of hopeful, is that, is that there are things that people can do at multiple levels uh, as individuals, as families, as communities, uh, in their workplace, in their investment activity, if, they've, if they're an investor, uh, in their political activity as a citizen, whether it's in a local community or city, city council, uh, national government, in, internationally. And it is the kind of issue which needs multiple responses at multiple levels. And, and so there are things that everyone can do to some extent irrespective of their own particular skill set, their own particular calling, their own particular uh, areas of, of expertise or lack of expertise. So the next point to make is that, of course, climate change is one of an integrated series of issues which, you know, afflicting humanity in the ecological space. There's biodiversity loss, pollution, you know, soil contamination, deforestation, all sorts of things. So we need to have a, you know, a broad brush kind of, integrated response in the end. And, and if we're going to make real progress at the global level, we need global collaboration and cooperation, which sadly at the moment is, is somewhat lacking. At the national level, we need policy changes which facilitate people doing things that they otherwise couldn't do. I mean, so for example, it, it would be impossible to have a significant increase in the electric car fleet without a substantial increase in charging facilities around the country. When we first got our electric car, just to be very specific about it, uh, you could go to almost any charging station anywhere in the country, and we've been as far south as Manipuri and as far north as Auckland, and, and generally not have to wait to charge the car. Well, within three years since we got our electric car, that has changed. And, and now you can find you're rolling up to charge the car, be it in Kaikoura or somewhere else, and, and there's other people already waiting, and you've only been there 10 minutes and someone else arrives. So we're going to have to have a much better developed network of charging stations. I mean, just to give you an illustration in that regard, Norway has something like, is it 11 or 14,000 charging stations? And we have probably under 1,000, probably well under 1,000. So, and that's a country of 5 million people, just like New Zealand. Though it happens to have almost 22% of the car fleet now being electric, whereas we're at about 1%. So we've got a long way to go. So if we just go through very quickly, you know, what can people do? Well, at a personal level, what we eat and how we clothe ourselves and how we move ourselves around, all those things matter. At the highest level, we should be flying as little as possible, whether it's domestically or internationally. And if we do fly, we should be buying carbon offsets. My experience is that very few people buy carbon offsets and hardly anybody has given up flying. <laughs> so that's a big issue because Flying is one of the most carbon-intensive activities you can undertake. Then, in terms of mobility on the ground, wherever we can, we should use public transport, walk or cycle, uh, or whatever, sitting rather than using a, a vehicle with an internal combustion engine. And if we have the means, we should either seek to do away with the car or move to having an electric car or plug-in hybrid. Then, in terms of um, what we eat, we should, in my view, be seeking to minimise the amount of high emissions intensive food we eat. So that's meat and dairy products, 
um, in particular, and we need to maximize the amount of sort of plant-based food we, we eat, which means essentially moving towards more of a vegetarian diet um, rather than a heavy focus on meat. Again, in terms of clothing, we should be looking to do our best to reuse, recycle, and, and keep things going as long as possible, repair, and more generally, in fact, moving towards a sort of more circular economy in which, in which we emphasise waste minimisation in every, every possible area. So, you know, every individual who has any control over any even small amount of their budget uh, is in a position to, to make decisions as a consumer that will have impacts on their ecological footprint and their carbon footprint and so on. And then, and then you know, you can go on to the role of individuals as citizens and our responsibilities to play our part in the government of our local communities and our regions and, and, and our nation. We've got the local government elections coming up next month here in New Zealand, and we've got a general election next year. Individuals can participate in multiple ways in our system. They can join political parties, and I wish more did, because we need to have good, robust political parties. They can join interest groups that can campaign on specific matters, and many people do, of course. They can organise petitions. They can write letters to their ministers, or relevant minister or, or MP. Uh, they can protest in various ways. Uh, my wife uh, is a member of, well, in effect, involved with Extinction Rebellion, has been involved both here and the United Kingdom in that respect. And every Friday when she's able, she goes to stand outside the Fonterra headquarters with a sign saying, Halve the herd. And, you know, some might disagree with the question of whether we need to halve the herd, but we certainly need, in the interests of both uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction and uh, improving fresh water quality, uh, we know we need to significantly reduce intensive dairying in certain parts of the country, very, very significantly. Yeah, so, you know, there's multiple things that people can do. What I would say here is that you know people need to be thoughtful about what contribution they can perhaps best make, given their age, stage, resources, capacity. Making changes of the kind that we need to make can often involve sacrifice and loss, and that can be painful and can often take a long time. This is not a policy issue which is, quote, going to be solved. Um, the best we can do is to seek to reduce the kind of damage that's going to occur in the future. But there will be massive damage, uh, you know, regardless of what we do. So we, we, we need to be very realistic. The risk is for people who perhaps get involved in this space, thinking that they can you know, change the world quickly, and, and when they find they can't, they get quickly disillusioned. Or, or they find that the sheer complexity and, and challenge of the issues actually makes them feel quite anxious if not depressed, and that then doesn't help in terms of their well-being or in terms of their contribution to solving the problem. So I, I just think one of the really important things here is, is, is a need to be absolutely realistic and to be aware that probably regardless of what we do as an individual, things are going to get worse. So let, let's not pretend we're not in a situation where there's some sort of magical silver bullet that we can shoot or absorb or something uh, and then it's all going to be better. We're not in that kind of situation. So in light of this, these really big issues that you've been speaking about, mm. where do you draw hope from and what does hope look like for you? Mm. Okay, so I approach this as a Christian, um, relatively orthodox Christian in this context, in the sense that I believe... Um, I can I can say the creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed, or the or the Nicene Creed without cringing. Uh, so I believe that we we have a, a God who is the Creator uh, of the universe, possibly other universes that we don't know about. I believe in a God who who became flesh in the form of Jesus Christ and lived among us as God incarnate, God made flesh, and showed us most powerfully and beautifully what God is like and through his death and resurrection provides a mechanism of salvation for humanity and indeed the planet if not perhaps the universe more generally and who provides God's spirit 
to inspire, refresh, encourage, comfort and heal. So I'm very much of the view that we live in a universe that is kind of God-ordained, that has a purpose, and that God is actively involved in the universe and, among other things, is working for wholeness, for restoration, for healing. So in the context of climate change and ecological disasters and so on, I, I do believe, even if the evidence doesn't always point in this direction, uh, that God is at work inspiring and encouraging people to act, giving people imagination, whether they're scientists or politicians or farmers or business people, giving people imagination to think of ways to, to address the problems uh, that we face, giving people courage, courage to take steps to do things that they might not otherwise have been willing to do, and, and, and bringing healing, bringing healing to minds and bodies in the process, and, and in terms of relationships and, and so on. So my hope ultimately rests in, in the nature of that God and that God who, who is a God of love, who loves the world so much or the cosmos in John's gospel so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in, in Jesus uh, can have life ever, everlasting. Now, having said that, I also believe that God has created a world in which there are real consequences. So just as you know, uh, unthinking or stupid acts by me at an individual level can have real consequences, very painful, if not irreversible consequences. So I believe God has given humanity that kind of awesome uh, collective capacity to inflict enormous harm uh, upon the planet and upon humanity. Uh, so that just as God, you know, won't intervene if I walk across the road foolishly and stop the car, uh, nor do I believe that you know, God will somehow stop humanity from um, committing collective suicide, <laughs> whether it's through blowing up the planet with nuclear bombs or heating the planet in such a way that destroys civilization as we know it. Having said that, you know, I do believe that God is always at work seeking, seeking to bring good out of bad wherever possible and seeking to redeem and restore and heal. So... If, if humanity fails to prevent sort of more than two degrees of warming or more than three degrees of warming or something like that, you know, there are going to be very, very, very real and irreversible and extremely costly consequences, without doubt. And I do not believe that God will kind of magically intervene and change the biophysical properties of the, of the planet so that the, planet system, the climate system will somehow operate differently from what it's currently operating. I think, you know, God has given us the means to understand the world and the means to uh, seek to better the world and the means to recognise risks and try and address those risks. He's given us you know, the insight through science and, and, and knowledge of the world. He's given us capacity to reason and he's given us imaginations to imagine different sorts of worlds. And those gifts of evidence and knowledge, scientific understanding of reason, of, of imagination, are enormously important, and we should never underestimate them. So I do take comfort at the moment from some remarkable technological innovations that are going on uh, around the world in all sorts of spheres that could have really quite profound implications for our capacity to decarbonise the planet, move more towards a circular economy, change our dietary um, patterns dramatically over time, and so on. My, my concern is that most of these things take a long time uh, to, to get from the lab into sort of mass production and uh, big impact, and we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, just the standard questions that we ask mm. all of our professors who come in here. What is your most controversial opinion? If you were in a room with a group of other people from your field, what is something that you'd likely disagree with them about? Hmm. Well, one of them would be the relevance of God in theology. So probably in terms of the sorts of areas that I've been involved in, say in particularly the last 10, 15 years, child poverty, welfare, state issues on the one hand, and ecological issues, particularly climate change on the other, I suspect that most of the people who I've worked with, interacted with, and so on, 
would be in a situation where the majority of the things, if not the overwhelming majority of things that matter, we'd agree on in terms of issues of ethics, principles, the appropriate role of the state uh, in broad terms, in, in, in sort of quite a lot of specific policy issues. But certainly in the environmental area, right from when I got involved as a teenager, back in the 1970s, it would be fair to say that lots of people involved in the environmental movement here and overseas have been pretty, hmm, how can I put it, negative towards Christianity. And many Christians have been negative towards the environmental movement. <laughs> so, so, so some people would have accused me of being a pantheist or a panentheist. Um, uh, certainly, that, you know, a pantheist is someone who believes that kind of the world is, well, the universe is God and God is, is the universe. They are all kind of all one and there's no distinction. Whereas a theist believes that God is both transcendent, in a sense, outside of the universe, but also imminent, involved in the universe. And, and I'm a theist, not a, not a pantheist or in, in that context. And to the extent that I, you know, was to declare my theological convictions in a, a group of ecologists, probably the overwhelming majority of them would, uh, would disagree with me on theological matters. Mm. Mm. So that would probably be the most controversial. Um, if I was to um, say we should put the New Zealand economy on a war footing to address climate change, that might that might spark a few furrowed brows and uh, gasps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what do you mean by war footing exactly? I mean, you recognise that this is an issue of immense importance and immense urgency. The parallel would be how we reacted to the pandemic. I mean, that was putting New Zealand economy on a war footing, if ever there was. We closed the border. We'd never done that in the history of New Zealand before. We closed the borders. Uh, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, it still gives me a chill when I think of it. Um, we, we basically required everybody, barring, you know, uh, essential workers, to stay at home, you know, and not to go beyond, you know, a few kilometres from your home. For, for weeks on end, uh, and months in the case of Auckland. Now, I, okay, I'm not suggesting that for, for climate change reasons, but, but that's, that's the sort of dramatic nature that, that, that uh, so uh, if, we were putting, if we were really, really concerned about reducing emissions, well, we would not be encouraging international aviation rather than spending tens if not hundreds of millions advertising New Zealand internationally as a wonderful tourist destination, we'd be saying, no, that's irresponsible. It's morally irresponsible in this, in this world with a, uh, a global carbon budget, which we're blowing very rapidly. We, we must essentially uh, move away from that kind of model until such time as we can travel internationally at you know, very low, if not zero emissions. So you know, either hydrogen or electric planes or something else that we haven't come up with yet. Um, and we're a long way from that, particularly for international aviation. I mean, that would go down exceptionally badly, I know. Uh, we would be telling people, you know, uh, you shouldn't be buying uh, internal combustion engine vehicles, new ones. From here on, uh, you can only buy uh, electric vehicles or plug-in hybrids. And, and if there's nothing that suits what you absolutely need on the market at the moment, then we'll give you an exception, just as we had exceptions you know, for COVID in certain circumstances. You would be encouraging people to, to move to a vegetarian diet. I can imagine that going down extremely well in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be doing our very, very best to move to, you know, 100% renewable or near that for electricity production, mm. which would mean, amongst other things, we'd probably have to bite the bullet and have some additional form of energy storage, be it big batteries or or pump storage that they're thinking about in, in Otago. And there'll be lots of other things. I mean, obviously we'd be making some pretty pretty big changes to um, land use with large investment in, um, in reforestation, in rewilding parts of the country and so on. And we'd certainly be preventing any expansion of high carbon intensive industries or activities. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So to put the New Zealand economy on a war footing would be like drastic, dramatic state, uh, changes in economic status quo to sort of target specific areas of that climate change as an issue. Yes. 
Yes, it would, uh, Mika, and and I don't see it happening anytime soon. No. Mm. The political class have not been really educating the public about the seriousness of the issue. I had a s- study leave in London in the second half of 2019. It was at the London School of Economics. I spent some time talking to people uh, at the LSE and elsewhere about climate change issues. And I came back to New Zealand even more profoundly concerned about the issue than I had been hitherto. And my wife spent some time on the streets of London with um, Extinction, uh, Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion. Yes, uh, was escorted by the police several times, but mercifully was not arrested because I didn't want us to sort of get trapped in London with her in jail. Um, when I came back to New Zealand, I thought to myself, what else can I do that might make a difference in this area of climate change? And so, having thought about it a little bit, I wrote to the Prime Minister, the Minister of Finance, the Minister for the Environment, and the Minister for Climate Change Issues, and I said, if we're going to make significant progress in policy terms in this space, we need a better educated public. And if we're going to have a better educated public, we need a dedicated, multi-year, government-funded, science-led, non-partisan information and communication strategy that will inform people about the seriousness of the issue globally and locally and the sorts of things that we need to do in policy terms and, and for business in private citizens, households and so on. And, and all those elements are really important. This had to be, you know, multi-year, evolving as the science evolves, hmm. non-partisan, science-led, really competently choreographed, if I can put it that way, using high-profile individuals from, from sports, from uh, you know, media, fashion industry, whatever, to communicate the message. So I sent this letter off middle of January, middle of February, thereabouts, maybe it was towards the end of February, I got a reply from Grant Robertson on behalf of the Prime Minister, because what I'd said, amongst other things, was that we needed to allocate money in the forthcoming 2020, 2021 budget, yeah. mm-hmm. May 2020, for this task. And Grant wrote me this nice letter saying, thank you, Jonathan, for your, for your reflections. Yes, we understand your concerns and... Yes, so broadly agree that we need to do more in this space. But, first of all, there's no money in the 2020 budget for such an initiative. And I was thinking maybe some tens of millions, you know, very small amount on an annual basis. Yeah. No money in the 2020 budget for such a purpose. And um, anyway, we're waiting for the Climate Change Commission to provide advice, which I understand. Four weeks, maybe five weeks later, the government announced... They'd found $50 billion, $50 billion, to address the challenge of the pandemic. And as everybody knows, while the pandemic has been very damaging, it's cost, from a global planetary point of view, I think it's in the vicinity of $20 trillion. So it's pretty big, but it's nowhere near as big as the impacts that climate change will have for humanity and uh, all other living creatures on the planet, and plants and so on, over the coming generations. So we couldn't find a small amount of money, mm-hmm. trivial sum of money, for the kind of thing that I think is necessary to try and help encourage and educate people so that then governments are going to be more able to do the sorts of things that they need to do. But we could find $50 billion, $50 billion for a pandemic at short notice. So, you know, that highlights, and it goes back to the point I made earlier about the need for realism here about what's possible in the climate change space. If you have an immediate threat to human life on a large scale, namely a pandemic, you can do all sorts of things. If you have a distant threat to the survival of civilization, well, it's not big enough (laughs) to constitute a politically significant kind of moment to make bold policy changes Mm. yeah that can be incredibly frustrating Mm. yeah sounds exhausting as a field of work well it it, it has been rain but it's also been enormously rewarding in all sorts of ways you know i've i've met and, and enjoyed the company of and learned from some absolutely wonderful people here and overseas 
um, people across the biophysical sciences, people in medicine, people in humanities, in, in commerce, in law. Mm. I've had the privilege of helping to run all kinds of events, which have been very rewarding personally, uh, very engaging. I've learned a lot, mm. you know, just at a personal level, while it has been costly in many ways, in terms of loss of sleep, among other things, it's, it's been hugely rewarding intellectually and from a career point of view. And it's also been, as a Christian, rewarding in the sense that I have genuinely felt that this is a way I can fulfill my calling mm. as a Christian to contribute to public life, public policy. And I hope highlight that actually, you know, Christians do have some value to add in the public realm, mm. that there is a place for faith in democracy, to use the title of a book that I've brought along, um, and faith in democracy has double, double meaning, obviously, that, that democracy is important and is something we need to protect and cherish and nurture, but it's also a realm in which faith and people with convictions based on their faith need to have a right and opportunity to contribute. It is 443. Oh so gosh, is it? Maybe that book that you've highlighted can be our last question at the end. That can, mm. that can okay. fabulously end. So thank you very much for your time. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for listening. <laughs>